Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Let's start today with a riddle game. You follow them unthinkingly, which may mean the time that you think about them is when you want to break them. They seem to mean something far different for other people than they do for you. And yet when you come to say why, it's a challenge. Like time, you understand them if nobody asks you about them, but the minute you try to define them, you get tongue-tied. What are they? Well, if you guessed my parents, you get half credit, but the real answer is rules. And today's guest, Lorraine Daston, has just written a breathtaking new book about them. So not content with simply distinguishing rules from laws, this book proposes a tripartite structure, a taxonomy that divides all rules into, and we're gonna come back to these three, laws that govern, models that teach, and most discussion worthy for our era of big data, algorithms which calculate and measure. Okay, I'm John Plotz, hello. I study science fiction and I'm joined as usual by our anthropological ruler, ruler in oh so many senses, Elizabeth Ferry. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi. Okay. And once again, our RTB virtual guest today is the eminent, the preeminent, I said it before and I'm sticking to it, the preeminent historian of science, Lorraine Daston, who last spoke with us at the height of the pandemic for our series on books in dark times. So hello again, Rini. Hi, very nice to be with you both. It's wonderful to have you. So, so Lorraine Daston's works are too numerous to list here, but they include the utterly transformational book, Objectivity, co-authored in 2017 with Peter Gallison. I just uh, spent an hour talking about it with my graduate seminar this morning, so I have it on the brain. Um, and um, an edited collection with Elizabeth Lundbuck. This is just an example, but it's one I love, Histories of Scientific Observation in 2011. And so, Rainey, as you know, we each have many thoughts about this wonderful multifoliate book, but the format with a new book under discussion is to invite our author to start by laying out what seems to you the key questions or key claims of the book. 
and we'll respond on our thoughts and questions that arose from our own encounter and the conversation will go from there. So handing the floor over to you. And as an aside, I too really love the co-authored books. Mm. Um, the, the rules book began with an everyday observation of the dazzling variety and ubiquity of rules. It's been a commonplace of ethnography and travel literature since at least the time of Herodotus that every culture has rules, but they're all different rules. And Herodotus has some famous passages um, about the Egyptians that dramatize that contrast. But I was looking for something um, more structural about the kinds of rules. And as you said in your introduction, John, I settled on three major meanings of rules, two of which are still very much with us, um, rules as laws and rules as algorithms. And a third meaning, which was predominant for most of the term's history, at least in the Western tradition until the end of the 18th century, mainly rules as models. And I set out to trace um, both what happened to rules as models, but also the rise and rise of algorithms, uh, a word which didn't even have an entry in the most comprehensive mathematical encyclopedia of the late 19th century, but now, of course, um, rules us all. So my, my attempt was to look at, um, to try and track these three kinds of rules, um, but to pay very close attention, because I am a historian, to the concrete particulars. So I cast my nets very wide. I looked at cookbooks, I looked at rules of war, I looked at rules of games, I looked at rules of monastic orders, um, I looked at uh, traffic regulations, sumptuary regulations, spelling rules, um, um, and of course, algorithms for how to calculate. And I suppose if there's one take-home message from the book, it is um, a distinction between thick and thin rules. Thick rules are rules that come upholstered with all manner of qualifications, examples, caveats, and exceptions. They are rules which are braced to confront a world in which recalcitrant particulars refuse to conform to universals, versus thin rules of which algorithms are perhaps the best prototype, um, which are rules which are um, formulated without attention to circumstances. They, all rules are in the imperative, but these rules are um, brook no quarter. They, they offer no sense of a variable world. And as I said, algorithms are perhaps the example that's um, most present to mind, but many bureaucratic rules, especially bureaucratic rules in their Kafka-esque exaggeration also fit this description. And the arc of the book is to describe not how thick rules became thin rules, because we have thick and thin rules around us all the time, but rather where thick rules are necessary, where you must anticipate high variability and the need to tweak your rule to circumstances, and where thin rules in exceptional cases, at least historically and cross-culturally seen, um, 
where thin rules can actually get a job done because one can standardize the context and keep it stable. Though you do end one of your chapters, and this is one of the lines that I really loved. It's a discussion of, um, well, of, of, of uh, it's chapter eight about bending and breaking rules. You say behind every thin rule is a thick rule cleaning up after it. Yes, um, I had a very vivid mental image conforming to that sentence, which yes. was of the poor moderators at what was once Facebook um, having to uh, undo the damage done by the Facebook algorithms. And it was exactly that kind of backstage cleaning up, which lay behind that sentence um, when I wrote it. But I think it's a much more general problem. And that is that um, thin rules have a bad conscience. That is, mm. they're never as thin as they pretend to be. And we're always applying them with a kind of mauvaise foi because anyone, for example, anyone who teaches and all of us who teach are always confronted with students who have special circumstances, um, special needs, and are asked whether or not the rules can somehow if not be bent or broken, be contoured to that case. That is, we're all casuists at heart. And we're casuists at heart pretending to um, administer thin rules. Mm. So there's always a sense of subterranean thick rules behind the thin rules that we are allegedly enforcing or obeying. I I think that connects, um, and Elizabeth, sorry, I don't want to hog the mic here, but I think that connects to um, a, a very interesting set of arguments I hear you making about the category of judgment as well, um, how judgment comes to be associated with subjectivity, but that that's maybe a misunderstanding of the um, intersection of general and particular that that calls out that that calls out for judgment rather than judgment proceeding from. Uh, idiosyncrasy or caprice on the part of the judger. You know, it's, it's, this is a really interesting historical development. Um, starting in the late 17th century and the 18th century, you begin to see um, a deepening distrust of the exercise of judgment. And perhaps most spectacularly, although this is not an area that I dwell upon in this book, in the area of theology. Mm. So that not, not even God is allowed any longer to make exceptions. <laughs> um, although theologians, of course, always um, hold out the possibility that God could perform a miracle. In fact, they emphasize that he does so very rarely because he sets more store by the uniformity and universality of his administration of the universe than he does by the extravagant exception. Um, this is carried to the point that when the Lisbon earthquake kills some 15,000 people and absolutely levels the city and becomes a philosophical scandal throughout Europe, um, it occasions Voltaire's Candide amidst other complaints about how God is administering the universe. Um, someone like Benjamin Franklin can say, well, it's very unfortunate for the people of Lisbon, but by that disorder, the earth has churned up materials otherwise hidden that would mm. be um, rare and valuable for human use. And it is the case also that um, ministers in Northern Europe noticed that the water table had risen as a result 
they thought, of the Lisbon earthquake. So this is a God whose mercy has become statistical. Um, this is no longer the God who um, attends, not a sparrow falls, but, but God attends. So even in that realm, even God's judgment is seen mm. as increasingly rule-bound um, and increasingly um, not susceptible to deviations, even in a very good cause. Mm -hmm. So I have a question about your argument with respect to, to thick and thin rules. And partly it's because of, you mentioned uh, Michael Polanyi, but mm -hmm. I kept thinking about his brother, Carl Polanyi, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and particularly the idea of embeddedness that uh, Polanyi talks about, which is a kind of thickness, right? I mean, he's talking about it with respect to markets um, mm -hmm. and the ways in which things that we, uh, that economists conceptualize as the laws of the market exist within a kind of formal universe that at least makes the claim to be disembedded, right? So. And, and he has a, you know, there's an argument about the sort of the great, what he calls the great transformation, right? This sort of moment, movement from embedded to disembedded, not necessarily in an evolutionary sense and in, in a teleological sense and not, not always um, sometimes more ideological than actual. But do you see something, I mean, I got, there's a suggestion in the book too that at least um, aspirationally, there's a historical movement from thick to thin rules. So aspirationally is indeed the word that ought to be italicized here. Um, right. but, and, and I started off um, with very much that narrative in mind. I think, especially for historians of science, there's an almost irresistible magnetism to the we are marching toward modernity narrative. Right. Um, but I, I ended up, and this was in part, because I, by chance, was finishing the book in the midst of the pandemic, um, realizing that this was not an irreversible historical evolution. On mm -hmm. the contrary, at, at any moment, a world of thin rules, just-in-time supply chains, um, can collapse right. uh, in the face of a planetary pandemic, in, the, in, in this case, um, perhaps uh, a, 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 a hurricane, a you know, right. class five, category five hurricane, that in fact, what one is seeing is a kind of archipelago of islands of stability um, and um, uniformity often guaranteed by standardization, um, which these, these islands are the very protected ecotopes in which thin rules can arise. And they're always fragile, right. they're always precarious. And many of them depend on physical infrastructure. So for example, um, um, probably the most important steps toward regularizing traffic in early modern cities was the creation of sidewalks, for example, that separated right. pedestrian traffic from first horse and carriage traffic and later bicycle and then later car traffic. So 
there's a physical story to be told as well about how um, rules are stabilized or to use the metaphor of thick and thin, how thick rules are put on a diet to become thin rules. <laughs> but um, your discussion of thinness here seems very connected to your discussion of the rise of the algorithm in preference over other rules. And, and I was thinking of your three sets of rules as kind of a triangle, which was somewhat independent of thickness and thinness. But now that I hear you talk, I'm thinking that the algorithm and thinness may line up together. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. And then I have a follow-up to that. But okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, uh, historically, that ends up being the case. That is yes. the term that dad quem. But it's not, it, it, in the long, long history of algorithms, so the, you know, the most um, fundamental algorithms are the operations of arithmetic, mm -hmm. subtraction, multiplication, and division. And in the long, long history of algorithms all over the world with great mathematical traditions, um, they have um, a very thick texture often. Um, it's often the case that they are taught by lots and lots and lots of examples. Um, a rule might be articulated in bare bones fashion, but nobody learns it that way. It's incomprehensible, frankly. And if you think back to the way in which you learned, for example, um, you know, how to solve two equations and two unknowns in high school algebra, um, you will remember um, certain kinds of problems as train problems or bathtub problems and the yes. like. That's because the way in which we learn to solve those problems and to recognize that that was that kind of problem was doing many, many, many examples. So yes. this is not a genre which has disappeared, and that is algorithms um, dressed up like the Michelin man, you know, cushioned yeah. with lots and lots of examples. Um, it's only when um, calculation starts to become mechanical in the mid-19th century that you begin to get um, what seems to be an unbreakable association between thin rules, algorithms, and rigidity, because the faculty of judgment which is needed to tweak a thick rule or a thin rule to fit circumstances is not accessible to either the machine with levers and cranks, which is um, computing um, actuarial tables or astronomical yeah. tables, or later to the electronic computer. Yeah. So, that, Rainey, that leads in so nicely. Thank you very much to my second question, which was to actually to ask about the relationship of this book to the argument that you put forth in objectivity, but elsewhere as well, about the rise of epistemic virtues. And as a 19th century person, it makes sense that I would focus on this. But, you know, as I was discussing with my students today, you know, you're, you have an argument about the preference for objectivity over reason judgment as a, as a kind of norm of scientific certainty in the 19th century. And I'm wondering, so is your argument here does it effectively contain that objectivity argument within it? Or yes, how do you see them? As I mean, it's certainly very much shaped by um, the, the many, many, many discussions that Peter Gallison and I had about mechanical objectivity and its procedural quality. Absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose what's missing um, from both um, objectivity and from this book is an account of um, the negative associations of the arbitrary. So you know, the root of arbitrary is simply an act of will. And uh, its associations are, if anything, quite positive, really, up until about the 16th and 17th century. 
Um, and it starts to take on a, a distinct odor of whim and caprice, often mm. cruel whim and caprice in the political theory of the 17th century. So John Locke writing in the second treatise on government can think of nothing, nothing more intolerable than to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, um, arbitrary will being somewhat repetitive um, it, because arbitrary is always about the exercise of will, but the, the ipso facto assumption is that all exercise of will as an act of will is um, somehow unjustified, excessive, and um, a form of the unacceptable exercise of power in the most extreme case of master over slave. So can I ask, this is maybe asking you to do my own homework for me since it's about aesthetics, but it, there is a story that we tell on the aesthetic side about the rise of discourses that prize subjectivity in the 19th century. Like romanticism would be the most straightforward example. But, you know, I teach Victorian novels and, you know, the notion of individual, you know, women coming into a form of consciousness, which is defined by having capacity to act on their own. And that, I take the point about the arbitrary or the capricious, but it does, there is a prizing of the, yeah, the space of the interior. How does that fit into this? Is that a, is that a backflow or a anomaly or, yeah? I, I don't think it's an anomaly. I think that um, what's created often, I think, on a very gendered pattern yeah. um, is a kind of yin-yang mm. <laughs> Objectivity and subjectivity. You see this explicitly amongst the scientists. Those are the texts that I um, yeah. best, in which someone like Claude Bernard, the great 19th century French experimental physiologist, says, you know, um, art is subjective, science is objective. Um, so it's a dividing of the territory um, between them. And in the context of, of literature, especially romantic literature, um, the arbitrary is never judgment, actually, but the arbitrary. Um, blurs into the spontaneous mm -hmm. um, and indeed into the exercise of free will. And since it's in counterpoint with scientific naturalist doctrines of determinism, the only way actually to exercise free will is for it to erupt like a volcano with no apparent change of causation um, leading up to it. I mean, really, this is for people who haven't read the book. You have an argument about the rise of the algorithm, which, like, as in your case of the laws of arithmetic, you're saying predates the current fancy pants technology that we have. But what is your chicken and egg thought about how the technologies, like, are the technologies um, in a forcing bed because people come to prize algorithms more or do the technologies come along and make algorithms more attractive and therefore the thinking of the culture tends more towards the algorithmic? The algorithm as a definition of a rule is number three or four usually in dictionary definitions well through the 19th century. So that there's something that happens, I think really after in, after the, in the post-war period, and perhaps even after um, the spread of personal computers um, in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, which um, is not only a enormous amplification of what algorithms are applied for, but also it, it, it becomes 
something which is almost a prosthesis for us so that I think a great deal of our ways of thinking are now being shaped by the hours and hours and hours that we spend interacting um, with these algorithms. And perhaps um, the most intuitive way I can think of to make this vivid is learning Google search, how to search for something on Google, as opposed to a classical index. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so um, and anyone who grew up with classical indices knows that um, you would um, have noun something of. <laughs> yeah. um, that's not the way to look for something on 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 Google. So that and almost without realizing it, our syntax of search, the way in which we're formulating questions for searches, has been altered through long interaction. I mean, this is hardly the first time that such technologies have infiltrated our ways of thinking. Um, writing, for example, um, is the most obvious. Reading and writing, obviously, yes. as well. But it's become what um, is sometimes called um, a cultural technique, which is more than just a, a technique. It's more than just a tool. Um, it becomes a way of thinking. I was really interested in the description of the cookbooks and the rules in cookbooks, and especially the, you say something about sort of, there. there's kind of no claim, in these early modern cookbooks, there's sort of no claim to generalization, and there's a kind of Im immanence of the rule in practice, and especially, and you don't, you don't say as much about this, and this is where I'm curious, kind of the practice of the body, in the case of the cookbooks, um, we're, we're told more or less explicitly, um, especially in the early cookbooks, say the cookbooks of the 17th century, that these are books which are meant not for rank beginners, but for people who've already undergone an apprenticeship, who have indeed mastered um, at the elbow of a master cook the bodily movements to fold in egg whites into a roux properly mm -hmm. um, or to um, know how to um, candy orange peel uh, and the like. And what you see, and this is a kind of trace, I think, of those bodily practices, is that the cookbooks become ever more idiot-proof. Mm -hmm. So the early cookbooks are really quite sparse on procedural instructions. They tell you the ingredients. They're extremely finicky about the ingredients. There are some quantities as well. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the cookbooks, which are addressed to a broader and broader audience, quite explicitly and in opposition to the cookbooks meant for the apprentice who wants to become a master, um, those cookbooks tell you things like, um, not only should you, if you're making a boiled pudding, stir the pot now every now and again to make sure the bag containing the ingredients does not stick to the bottom. Um, they even tell you, don't use a soapy bag, which right. no previous cookbook would have thought needed right. say. Yeah. yeah. And uh -huh. tie it loose for this and tight for this. And yeah. Yeah. that's right. Exactly. Exactly. So and all of those are, of course, gestures. And um, and and I suppose a question of a sort of Michael Polanyi sort is, 
if you didn't already know how to fold egg whites into a roux, could you learn by reading Julia Child, for example? Right, right. Um, yeah. And I suspect not. And that returns to the questions about models, which is I suspect that what's going on is a um, very much as in the earlier annals of roux following is a simultaneous um, implicit and explicit crystallization of rules. Mm. So it's important that the rule be set down in explicit form as a kind of guide rope, but mm. it's, it has to be supplemented by the model, the implicit form. Right. Um, and I think even though it's very difficult to find traces, textual traces of this or visual traces of this, I'm sure that's also going on um, with the rules of monastic orders, mm -hmm. that there is a physical patterning of posture um, of the monks following that of the abbot. Um, I'm sure you've observed this as I have, that um, graduate students who are in the, under the sway of a charismatic um, professor start to dress um, <laughs> as she does, or start to, there are certain mannerisms which yeah. are, unconsciously imitated. I think that this is all simply a further illustration of this process. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah. In fact, you have a wonderful line about that, Rainy, that I was thinking might be a good bridge to where we are now, which is the notion of um, rules as models that models that teach. I mean, the par the um, emulative rule following. <laughs> and one, you don't talk a lot about childhood here. These are mostly examples of adults, but you do at one point say, children understand intuitively how to follow but not ape their parents' example. And I feel like that, and uh, interestingly, the point you were just making about micro gestures sort of goes on to the aping. Um, uh, Elizabeth and I were at Hopkins where there were a lot of graduate students who were aping <laughs> their professors. But but maybe you could say more about that notion of following without aping, that, that to follow an example is not to mimic, like we have all these words like ape and mimic that diminish emulation, but that there's this other form of valorized emulation. Right, exactly. And um, we, we've lost, I think, a vocabulary, which is a more discriminating one um, about these forms of following as opposed to um, making an exact facsimile. Um, I, I, I don't know what you think about this, John, as a literary scholar, but it seems to me that genres are doing this work. So the Aeneid is not an imitation of the Iliad um, and Paradise Lost is not an imitation of either of them, but you can see that they belong in a family lineage and that they are, that, the, that Milton has internalized both the Iliad and the Aeneid um, in deep ways. I, I don't know very much about this, but I've read really fascinating work. Um, by the philosopher Arnold Davidson on it, on musical improvisation, mm. uh, which strikes me also as 
um, in a different medium, very similar in which there are um, recognizable themes, but then there are, um, there, there's, a, there's an enlargement of the possibilities without losing um, the motif of the original theme, theme and variations of one kind or another. And I, I, you know, I don't know about, this is completely amateurish, but in watching children, um, I see something very similar going on. Um, and it, it seems in a sense essential for the child to realize not only what is the rule in this circumstance, but how do I know in which domain to apply this rule? Um, and, and that yes. is learned through, I think, model following. Yeah. Can I just follow up on that to connect? I mean, I kept thinking about saints' lives and also Jesus as emulatable. General, more generally speaking, and the the waxing of that as a as a paradigm. So I guess one question is to think about specifically about the religious dimensions of that. If genre is like a secular form, what the religious forms is. But then I guess another question about that is to ask. I think this is another version of the discussion we've been having about the rise of thin rules. Have has emulation actually gone away from the religious sphere? Like, do we not still have that as a paradigm for how religions are modeled? I mean, maybe we don't. I mean, the examples that you gave of things like Ben Franklin would suggest we've turned God into the clockmaker or something. But 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 I do feel like there's some forms of religion nowadays that are still emulative in their right. Paradigms. I agree. Yeah. I think I think, was, I think imitatio Christi. You know, what would Jesus yeah. do? Is still very much um, yeah. one form. But but interestingly, a form which is which cannot be cannot be um, um, a mimicking. I mean, Jesus uh, oh. did, was, did not find himself in the situations that we find ourselves. Um, he has never had, I suppose he did have to worry about cheating on his taxes, render unto Caesar <laughs> Caesar's. Um, <laughs> but but there are, I, I assume that there are lots of modern dilemmas of the sort that people write into the New York Times ethicist about that Jesus never encountered um, in first century CE Galilee, and that therefore what we are doing is, is exactly this kind of emulatory model following, which is we are extrapolating somehow yeah. a yeah. model in our heads and imagining mutatis mutandis, what would be the way to behave here. Um, it's interesting, the Catholic Church has a very wise doctrine, which is we are to admire saints, but not to emulate them, because hmm. They realized, especially in the case of female saints, that life would come to a halt if everybody <laughs> decided that they wanted to be a saint because the first thing the saints do is decide they no longer have time to do the household chores. Yes. Um, they have bigger fish to fry um, in a kind of Mary and Martha-like dialogue. Um, so um, right. certain limits were put to um, um how you should use the the saints vitae right right well it is what would jesus do not what did jesus do mm. but exactly which requires exactly this yeah. uh, extrapolation um mm -hmm. which is what's going on with model following right right yeah so it's then Oh, sorry. Um, I just had a quick story that the discussion about children just reminded me of a kind of searing early memory of being in grade school and doing a play, acting out a little scene, 
it was in like kindergarten or something. And in the middle of the scene, I forgot that it was a play and I thought we were playing. So I said, oh, let's pretend something. And the other kids like got, went down on me so hard. I, I'm still like ashamed <laughs> about it, like years later. <laughs> yes, it was, yes, it was clearly true. like, I just forgot, like which, which, yeah. which kind of a context am I in here? You know? <laughs> Right. Yeah. And it's so interesting what you say, though, about how ferociously the other kids responded, because there, there really there, there is a kind of earnestness with which um, children take whatever rules have been right. established for a context. Um, there is a psychologist. Very autocratic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, very interesting work by Michael Tomasello, a um, developmental psychologist who has looked at what happens with children um, uh, and they, they're, they're quite, they're quite savage, you know, when they see violations of rules, um, unless they are told in the make-believe scenario, they are asked to judge that the child is a newcomer and doesn't know the rules yet. Mm. They're capable of moderating um, their disapproval. And so that, they, it, it, I, oh man, in another version of this con conversation, which I think, alas, we're probably turning towards the final sections of it now, but we could pursue um, the Hoitzinga homo ludens, you know, that right. notion yeah. of demarcated yeah. spaces, because it is, yeah. I, well, actually, maybe, Rainy, I'm going to steal, I'm going to steal space to ask this question. The, the, the description you have of the islands of stability, how would it consort with Hoitzinga's argument in homo ludens about what he calls these sacred spaces apart, you know, the notion that what that what games do is provide um, a well-regulated space, which is mm -hmm. at once fully realized and also understood to be fictional, right? Those I, are rules I, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I, that book is a brilliant book. It's one of my favorite books of all yeah. time, but, um, and I absolutely agree that the game to, in, is in some ways the, prototype of these islands of stability and uniformity I'm talking about. Um, they, they are the enclosure of a protected world amidst all of the um, untidiness um, and disorder and unpredictability of the real world. Yeah. That's incredibly helpful because it, like I remember Hoitzinger makes this crucial distinction between a cheat and a spoil sport. He says a cheat is somebody who's consonant with the rules of the game. Like you can understand wanting to get an extra point, but the spoil sport is the person who like walks across the lines without admitting that they're lines. And that's much more an existential threat. Right, um, no, the, spo yeah. the spoil sport is the anarchist. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The um, so I think this is a great moment uh, then uh, to, uh, turn to this final section called Recallable Books, where each of us names at least one older book, could be ancient, but could just be 20th century. In fact, even 21st century books have been named that those who enjoyed this conversation might enjoy. So can I ask you to give us a recallable book? Okay, so I said I had um, two. Um, yes. One of the, the rules of St. Benedict, which is the sixth century set of precepts for how to run a monastic order, and which is still being followed in monastic um, communities, you know, in Arizona, in uh, Monte Cassino, in Italy, and it's yeah. it's prototypical of these thick rules. Yeah. Um, and the other is the joy of cooking, oh. which you know, the archetypal um idiot-proof cookbook um, with which many of us grew up. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks. Um, amazing. You know, I'm writing about um, uh, the Canticle for Leibowitz, which is a post-nuclear oh, yeah. apocalyptic novel by, and I don't know if you, if, if you know this, but uh, Walter Miller himself was involved in the bombing of Monte Cassino. And so he then oh. imagines a Benedictine monastery in Arizona, in fact, where... Mm -hmm even the nuclear apocalypse could be survived, but there's some kind of compensatory logic vis-a-vis -vis Benedictines specifically. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, um, didn't really, I didn't know he had been involved in that. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, do you have a... Yeah, so so I love that the, you picked the joy of cooking and especially because it's, right, it's, it's from following the rules that the joy emerges, right? So it sort of perfectly captures this, this kind of interplay of... of um, creativity and and you know delightful chaos and rules um so i as usual i've changed my mind in the middle of our conversation and uh now i want to suggest uh george Perec, a life a user's manual mm -hmm. um which is a um a novel of a hundred chapters um in which uh each chapter is a is a room in a large parisian apartment house that the concierge is carefully going through. And, and uh, Perec was a member of the, I believe it's called the Ulipo movement, which is yes. a movement that, uh, of writing that imposes definitely arbitrary rules, or at least in some sense arbitrary, although there is you know some lack of arbitrariness is usually imminent. Um, but you know that, that sort of sense of this kind of you know, seeming rigidity and, and formula that kind of opens out each room is this sort of perfect little world of particularity um, that's existing within within this rule. So, so that's my suggestion. Mm, that's great. And um, Rainy, this sort of, uh, this follows off your answer about the power of caprice and also the gendered nature of subjectivity in the 19th century, but it also relates, I thought, to your wonderful point about genre um, and the way that genres contain emulation without imitation. And so it's Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. And specifically, I'm thinking of the moment where this sort of unnamed narrator who is basically just kind of I, I would say soliloquized, but I think ranting might be a better word. He's sort of ranting at us, his imagined reasonable listeners. And he says, but damn it, gentlemen, sometimes two plus two equals five is a nice thing as well. So I think that it really gets at your point of like how we valorize, you know, to, to valorize the will and contradistinction to the rule. And um, yeah, and there's, I think there's genre stories there too, of what Dostoevsky is sort of pushing back against or both pushing against and building on, I suppose, in terms of prior genres. So, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, wow, that's a wonderful set of uh, recalled books. Thank you so much. I got to, I got to go grab my copy of Joy of Cooking right now. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, Rainy, this has been a real pleasure. Um, so, on behalf of Elizabeth and our listeners, uh, thanks for taking the time to to beam in. Um, oh, it was delightful to talk with both of you. Um, mm -hmm. It was great fun. Thank you. Great. And so if you have enjoyed this conversation, dear listeners, please check out the Recall This Book archives at our website, including um, Rainey's earlier appearance during the pandemic in the Books in Dark Times series. And thank you all 
for listening. Recall This Book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanity Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.